Would you turn with me, please, to the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians is, as far as we know, Paul's first uh, letter. It was written to a church in the city of Thessalonica, which uh, Paul had founded some months before he wrote this letter from uh, Corinth. The first uh, three chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians are filled with a lot of personal uh, data, memories, and reminiscences of his association with the people in Thessalonica. Then in chapters 4 and 5, he turns from personal matters to some practical things, things that have to do with love, sex, and marriage. It's always struck me as significant that the uh, apostle in the first letter he wrote and the first doctrinal issue he touched upon speaks about love, sex, and marriage. Paul was a, an eminently practical man. He knew precisely where we struggle, and uh, he speaks uh, very clearly to those issues. As a matter of fact, that's his major concern in the first paragraph to remind them that he was uh, very clear and his message came with Christ's authority when he uh, was in uh, the city of Thessalonica. Finally, brothers, he, he writes, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are now living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. Uh, when Paul says finally here, he doesn't really mean finally. He goes on for another uh, 48 uh, verses. Actually, more of the book follows than precedes that statement. And in fact, the word finally doesn't really mean finally. Paul is not one of these preachers that says finally and then goes on for 30 minutes. Uh, it's simply a, a, it's a particle that indicates a transition. He's moving from one set of facts to another. Now he says we're going to change the subject. And we're going to talk about something that I taught you formerly when I was in the city of Thessalonica. And there are two things that he wants them to know. The first is the clarity of his message, and the second is the authority with which it came. He says, in the first place, you know how to please God. We taught you what is God-honoring and God-pleasing. We don't need to be in the dark about God. He's not playing games with us. There are no altars to unknown gods in the church. He's revealed himself. The problem, as Mark Twain put it, is not that we don't understand what's in the New Testament. It's that we do. The, uh, the truth is very clear. And Paul says, you, you know. You know how to please God. You know what things are necessary in order to gain his, his approval and maintain it. And then secondly, he, he says, uh, not only was I clear, but I was authoritative in what I said. That what I said came to you with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. The apostles were very clear about their authority, which was derived from the Lord, very self-conscious of that authority. Paul writes earlier uh, to this same church, and he says, when you received my words, you received it not as the word of men, but but as it really is, the word of God that is at work among you. So Paul says this is not merely human opinion. This is, uh, this, these teachings come with the authority of, of Jesus Christ himself. 
Now he injects a third note. He says, you, you know these truths and you know with what authority they came. Now I just want you to abound more and more. In other words, I want you to grow with respect to these truths. God does not expect perfection in us as the psalm we read earlier Psalm 103 makes it very clear. God knows what we're like. He knows how weak we are. He knows we're dust. He, failures don't really bother him that much. What he looks for is progress. Are we growing? Sometimes that progress is almost imperceptible. We, we're not sure where we are at this moment. But in looking back, we can see that we're, we're growing in grace. We tend to grow to our limits in other areas. We, we grow to limits physically. It's all, one, of, one of my thorns is that I never quite made six feet. I was 5'11 and about 7 eighths, and I just could never squeeze out that extra eighth of an inch. And as I've gotten older, I'm even shorter. I'm 5'11 now. I, that was my limit. I just couldn't get any, any taller. And uh, we grow to our limits in terms of uh, intellect and in other ways, but there's no limit to growth in grace. You can keep on growing. And, and that's Paul's point. What God looks for is growth and progress. That's what pleases him. He wants you to keep moving, keep learning, keep growing. Now, uh, having reminded them of this teaching, he, he goes on to say again something about God's will. Verse 3. It's God's will, he says, that you should be holy. I taught you that over and over again. I, he says, I just want to underscore the fact that God wants you to be holy. That's his will for you. Now, when we think of God's will, we almost always think of, a, of an itinerary, a direction for life, who we shall marry, what our vocation will be, and those sorts of things. But, but the Bible hardly ever says anything about the will of God in terms of direction. God's will is character. And uh, that's very clear. We're never in the dark about what he expects of us. I expect you to be holy. Now, when we think of holiness, we al- almost always think of uh, some, someone with a long face, sad look, whose face would make a great frontispiece on the Book of Lamentations or Victor Hugo's uh, Les Miserables or someone who, uh, some prophet who wears a, uh, a hair shirt, but uh, basically the word holiness just means uh, set apart for God. It's used that way in all of the languages, ancient languages in which it's found. This means to be God's man or woman, to be unlike the rest of the world, to be counterculture in terms of, uh, of secular society. And uh, there is no area in which we ought to be more counterculture than that of love, sex, and marriage. We're always going to be swimming upstream. We're always going to be different. The world will always consider us naive and uh, behind the times. We're not with it. We don't understand. We don't know how to profit from the current revolution uh, in thinking. We're always going to be different. And Paul says, God's will is that you be different, that you be distinctive, that you be like God in the world. That's, that's the distinctive mark of a Christian. Not that we're hyperactive in terms of Christian activities, but that we are men and women of character, God-like character. Now, 
uh, Paul spells out that holiness in terms of three dimensions. This is not uh, a comp- comprehensive look at the will of God, but in terms of love, sex, and, and marriage, Paul says there are three dimensions of holiness I want you to be aware of. And each is introduced by the conjunction that. It's God's will that you be holy, specifically, number one, that you avoid sexual immorality. That's number one. And then down in uh, verse uh, four, that each of you should learn how to acquire his own vessel. The NIV says control your own body, but uh, I think he's talking about acquiring a wife, and we'll, uh, we'll, uh, I'll try to justify that interpretation in a moment. And then in verse six, the third dimension of holiness is that in this matter or in the matter, no one should transgress or take advantage of his, of his brother. And I think there he's talking about adultery. And again, I'll, I'll try to justify that uh, conclusion in a moment. So Paul says there are really uh, there are three dimensions of holiness. One, that you avoid sexual immorality. Two, that you learn how to acquire a wife in a proper fashion. And three, that you avoid uh, adultery. Now the first, it is God's will that you should be holy, i.e., that you should avoid sexual immorality. Uh, I don't know how Paul could be any more specific and, and concise. The word for avoid means to stay away from, and there's another preposition in there that means uh, separation, and, and the word for sexual, sexual immorality is the word fornication, which is the comprehensive word for all types of illicit sex. God's uh, chosen arena for sexual expression is... is marriage, where one man and one woman are committed to one another for life. And outside, uh, all other sexual misbehavior is called fornication. So it's a very clear teaching, very difficult to avoid the implications of this statement. Avoid fornication. Don't do it, Paul says. There, there are no circumstances in which fornication would be God's will. Now, there, there are, I know, some people who think they're special, who believe that their relationship uh, makes it possible for them to avoid uh, obedience. You know, they have a very loving relationship. And in that relationship, even though they're not married, sex is okay. I have a, a good friend, Ron Ritchie, who's uh, one of these men that has the uncanny ability to cut through all the guff and just get right to the issues. And he was talking to a friend of his one time, and this, this fellow was saying, oh, I know what the Bible teaches about fornication, but, but I have this uh, girlfriend, and, and our relationship is so beautiful, and it is so caring, and so loving, that sex for us is a high and holy thing. It must be God's will. And Ron listened to that uh, recital for a while, and, and finally he just broke right into the middle of it, and he said, oh, he said, I know what you're talking about. He said, I understand. Uh, that's what the Bible calls fornication. That's what it is. <laughs> and that's what Paul wants us to know. He says, in no uncertain terms, avoid fornication. That's not God's will for us under any set of circumstances. It's excluded. Now, that's the first dimension. Uh, I want to skip to the third because there are two 
negative statements and one positive, and I want to take the positive statement last. Uh, skip down to verse 6. This is the third dimension, but the second negative uh, command. And that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him, is the way the NIV translates. But if you read it right off the text, it says that no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. The word for transgress means to transgress against the lots. It was used by the rabbis to refer to disobedience to the Ten Commandments specifically. The phrase, the matter, is an idiom it's used in, in rabbinic literature of Paul's time for adultery. It's, it's a euphemism for adultery. And so I think Paul is referring here specifically to adultery, that no one transgress the seventh commandment and uh, commit adultery and thus defraud a brother because uh, adultery is not a victimless crime. Someone always gets hurt. Of course, the uh, mate who gets left behind is hurt and defrauded in that sense, cheated. You uh, steal his or her mate. And uh, Paul says it, it, it always involves hurt as well as the children. So um, avoid it. Stay away from it. It's not under any circumstances a part of God's will for you. Now, I'm not going to comment further on, on the issue because we talked about adultery three weeks ago except to say that uh, those, he says, who, who ignore this command will be punished. The Lord will punish men for all their sins as we have already told you and warned you. Uh, it's not smart, Paul says, to make an enemy of God. And that's precisely what happens when we, when we ignore these commands. Now, the idea of, of the wrath of God is always, uh, it's, it's a tough concept to handle. It's difficult. I don't even like to talk about the wrath of God. Uh, Brian Fisher and I are in a reading group with a, a group of men. Uh, most of them don't really take the scriptures seriously. And uh, just this past week, one of the men made the comment that this idea of the wrath of God is, uh, is, to, is in his own mind, a totally inappropriate concept for Christians because Jesus taught us that God is loving and compassionate and forgiving and gracious. And those things are true. But, but Jesus also is the one who taught us so much about the wrath of God. Most of the teachings about the judgment of God come from Jesus' lips. Now, we do need to understand that, that the judgment is not mere punishment. I, I, I don't really like this translation. It's not punity. It's discipline, the kind of discipline that we impose on children. It's redemptive. It's designed to, to straighten us out and, and make things... Uh, make things uh, better for us. What God does is just let us go, takes his hands off of us, lets us uh, uh, do what we want to do, have what we want, and we reap the consequences of, of what we sow. So Paul says it's really not wise to ignore these commands. We, we will pay for it in the end. Now, the positive command is found uh, in the middle. It's the second dimension of holiness. In verse uh, 4, that each of you should learn to acquire his own wife in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Some of the translations take this to refer to the body, but I, I, I think it has to refer to a wife. The, uh, 
the idiom vessel for wife is one that's found throughout the ancient world, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all the Semitic people, even Jews today will refer to their wife as their kali, their, their vessel. And that sounds a little crude to us, but really it's a term of endearment. It was just an idiom that's found in these languages that uh, it's commonly used to refer to one's wife. So when Paul says, learn how to acquire a, his own vessel, he means that a man needs to learn how to acquire a wife, how to get married. Now, that's an interesting question. How do you go about finding a wife? Uh, I just saw a lot of single people wake up at that, <laughs> at that point. <clears throat> Well, uh, Paul gives us some negative instruction as well as some positive instruction. He, he says, uh, first of all, don't do it like the pagan uh, people do who don't know God. He had said earlier in 1 Thessalonians uh, 1 that they had turned from false gods to the living and true God. And the presumption is if you know the living and true God, then you'll know how to do things properly because his will has been revealed. But those who don't know God, who are on the outside, who never heard his will, are likely to go about the whole process uh, wrongfully. He says that the, the real problem is they do it in passionate lust. They, they, they want someone to satisfy their needs. Their interests are selfish. They're centered around the meeting of their own needs, their loneliness. They need someone to cook and sew and clean house and uh, someone who's uh, available to meet their needs when they're lonely, to uh, satisfy their passions. It's self-centered and it tends to be very sensual. You listen to what men talk about when they describe their girlfriends, the, the sort of descriptions that, that come through. The, the concern is with the physical, mostly, what they look like, how attractive they are, uh, how... Uh, uh, how sensual they are in appearance. That seems to be the preoccupation. Paul says, don't do it like that. That's not the way to go about picking a wife. The way to acquire a wife is to do it in, in holiness. He uses the word for sanctification, or the word that's used earlier for the will of God. Holiness is God-likeness. It has to do with our, with our vertical relationship. Do it as, as God would do it. And secondly, in honor, that is in a way that, that treats the other person with honor, that doesn't abuse or exploit uh, their value as a, as a person, doesn't erode away their worth. Now, here's where we run into sort of an impasse because Paul doesn't go any, any further. I, I wish Paul had spelled it out in, in terms of specifics. How do you, how do, you do that in, in such a way that you honor uh, your potential mate? But uh, he doesn't. He had other things on his mind at this point. So I think what we have to do is draw some inferences from the rest of Scripture. Now, here's where, as Paul would say it, I'm giving my opinion. Uh, this is not a revelation from God. It's just some ideas that I have scraped together over the, the years, having spent most of my time up until 1978 working with students and with single people. I ran into this sort of problem over and over again, and uh, I have some ideas that I want to share with you. But they're just ideas, and you need to think them through and uh, justify for yourself whether they are they're scriptural. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 5. This is where I begin. 
Timothy was a young single man, as far as we know, and uh, charged with an enormous responsibility, an apostolic delegate to the churches in Asia Minor, uh, probably living in Ephesus when Paul wrote this letter. And uh, he gives a bit of counsel here about widows and elders and women and various other uh, uh, individuals within the church. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, he says, but exhort him as, as if he were your father. I'm reading verse 1 of chapter 5. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. That's the best counsel anyone ever gave about how to treat a member of the opposite sex. If you're a sister, treat other men as your brother. If you're a brother, treat women as your sister. They are brothers and sisters. We, we live in the same family. This is God's family. We have the same father. We are brothers and sisters, and we ought to treat each other like that. And Paul is saying the way, the way you would treat your sister in your home is the appropriate way to, to treat the sisters in, in the church. Now, very often people, uh, single people ask me, how far should we go in expressing our love physically? Where, where do you draw the line? What's, what's appropriate? Over the years, I've developed a, a thing. I've, I've been teased for it a lot. It's called a, a line of erotic activity, and I usually draw it out on a chalkboard. But I'll try to describe it for you if I can. I draw a line, straight line. And uh, on this end of the line over to the left is no physical contact, and at the end of this uh, line is sexual intercourse. Now, what, where, you know, where do we draw the line in terms of our relationships with one another? And then I, I put a series of little symbols in there. I go way over to the left and it, it, right at the end of the line toward the no physical contact uh, end. And I put a little tiny H, which stands for holding hands. That's a, that's a great erotic activity, little H. And then move uh, an inch or two down the line and I, and I put a, a, a little E, which represents a little embrace. Just a small hug. And then a little farther down, a little bitty K, which I call a holy kiss. Uh, just a peck. <laughs> peck on the cheek, you know. It's fine erotic activity. You move on down the, the line, and I put a big E, which is a big embrace, a protracted, lengthy hug. And then a big K, which is... Uh, a lengthy kiss. That's when you pucker up and you hold it. It's a big K. And then an inch or two to the right of that, uh, a big P for petting, and then SE for sexual intercourse at the end. And you know, where do you draw the line? And then I ask him the question, what does Paul say to Timothy? Treat the younger women like sisters. Where would you draw the line in terms of your sister? You know the expression, it's like kissing your sister. <laughs> there are certain things that are intuitively appropriate. You don't even have to spell it out. Holding hands seems perfectly appropriate. 
uh, a little hug, a little peck on the cheek, but, you know, you start moving over to the right and somehow it just doesn't seem appropriate. Now, I'll leave that with you for your uh, consideration. <laughs> treat the younger women like sisters. The second thing I would say is treat them as a friend. Now, let me explain. In, in the Bible, friendship is not something that happens to you. It's something you do to someone else. We're inclined to think of friendship as, uh, you know, in, in terms of selfish motives. We, we want someone to befriend us, someone who will call me when I'm down, someone who lift me up, someone who will who will teach me and encourage me and, and be a friend when I'm, I'm lonely. But the Bible turns that around and it says if, that a friend is someone whom you befriend. It's someone that you care for, someone you minister to. And the best illustration is the story of Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. Jonathan was David's friend. Jonathan was the heir apparent to the throne of Israel. His father, Saul, was the king of Israel. Uh, God had other plans. He chose David instead of Jonathan. And Saul was insanely jealous because his, his son wasn't, uh, wasn't anointed. And he knew about David, and so did Jonathan. And as the story unfolds, Jonathan did everything he could to see to it that David got to the throne. Set aside his own rights, trained David in warfare, trained him in kingship, uh, protected him from, his, uh, from the jealousy of his, of his father when Saul wanted to kill him. And at the end of the story, you have a very touching scene where Jonathan and David embrace for the last time. Jonathan goes off to war and he's killed. And uh, in, in the conversation, the, the author of, of Samuel says, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. He helped David to get a grip on God. And that's friendship. If a man wants to have friends, he may show himself friendly. And, and the highest level of friendship is helping another person to grow to maturity in Christ, to strengthen their grip on God. That's what I say. That's why I say not only treat the younger women like sisters, but treat them as a friend, not someone to be exploited, but someone to serve, someone to help. Move them on to God. That's what it means to be a friend. And you say, well, how will that help me get married? You have to get out there and, you know, you have, you have to kick bushes. You have to hustle a little bit. Now, let me tell you, the worst way to get married is to want to get married in the worst way. <laughs> really? Forget it. Let God be the matchmaker. Don't worry about your relationships. You know, John Fisher used to describe how relationships grow weird. That was his expression. You know, you... You go out uh, looking for a mate, and you have all these expectations, and they, you know, you let a little of yourself out, and they back off, and so you go a little further, and they back off, and then they come this way, and you back off, and and the whole thing just gets weird. You're always checking the, you know, the pulse of the relationship. How's it going? What did she mean when she said, "Dear David," and and you know, it's, it, it's awful. It's just terrible. We've all gone through it. It's the worst possible way to find a mate. Forget it. Let God find your mate. He knew Adam's needs. He knew he was lonely. He said it isn't good for him to be alone. He went out looking for a mate. In the meantime, be a friend. Be a servant. Be a brother. Be a sister. Uh, Paul concludes by saying in verse 7, that God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he rejects this instruction, does not reject man, but God, 
who gives you his Holy Spirit. As J.B. Phillips translates that last phrase, it's not for nothing that the Spirit which God has given to you is called the Holy Spirit. And the verb tense that he uses is the present tense. It implies an ongoing giving. Uh, the Holy Spirit, who is holy, is a renewable resource. Wherever you go, when you're on the road and the, the temptations of loneliness and, and anonymity assail you, or when you're in your apartment and, and, and someone is just a telephone away, someone that you know, uh, you know is there and, and waiting, but it's the wrong kind of relationship, or when you're in your automobile or in your bedroom or wherever you are, the Holy Spirit is there. He's being constantly given to you, and he's the Spirit who is holy, Paul says. So that the demands for holiness which are upon you are basically a demand upon him. You can rely on him. God would never say be holy without giving you the resources to comply. He's not that sort of God. And that's the place to stand when the winds blow and and you wonder if you're going to be able to make a stand when the whole world says you're crazy. That's a place to stand. Let's pray. This would be a good time, I think, to renew your commitment to Christ to be holy. This is clearly his will for you to avoid fornication, to acquire a wife in a proper way to avoid adultery, to know that we've been called to purity and we've been given a pure and holy spirit to comply. Would you tell the Lord that you're willing to submit to that that instruction? And perhaps you have a, a relationship now that's not good and you know it's not. It drags you down spiritually. Phillips translates that first phrase God's call is to holiness, and that implies a clean cut with sexual immorality. Perhaps that's what you get, you have to do. Make a clean cut. Walk away from a relationship that's very precious to you. But you know it's ultimately destructive. God will give you the courage to do that. Or perhaps your mind is filled with guilt over past misdeeds, you need to know that you're forgiven, that all God wants you to do is is repent, to change your mind about that sin, and, and accept his forgiveness, and go on walking in a forgiven state, knowing that, that he does not condemn you. We're forgiven. We have a new life. Father, thank you for this revelation of truth that comes to us with such clarity and with such authority because it comes from the lips of our Lord himself. We thank you. In Jesus' name.